0: Our topic in this lecture is constructive conflict. Is it possible? We all know destructive conflict is possible. We've all had experiences of destructive conflict. But the idea of constructive conflict is probably a little foreign to us. To us. We almost assume automatically that conflict is bad and that peacekeeping is where it really should be. And it might be that peacekeeping and peacemaking are two different things. That the peacekeeper is someone who tries to avoid conflict and often ends up in deeper conflict and the peacemaker is the one who has a view of the world in which he or she takes into account that life always involves struggle. And to be a servant of Jesus Christ in this world, you've got to fight like you never fought before, either fight or you die and you'd be surprised if you go through the bible how much of it is couched in fighting language even in Romans 6 where it speaks of the members of the body that's actually weapon terminology as we come to the conflict i'd like to to talk about conflict i'd like to Turn first to Luke 6, verses 39 to 42, to show you the paradoxical character of the kind of conflict the Lord wants to bring us into. Luke chapter 6, verse thirty nine, verses 39 to 42. Jesus is speaking. He told them also this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. It's a bit scary. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And the other passage, of course, is the James chapter 3 selection that we read earlier. James 3. Here we find that destructive conflicts are fueled by selfish ambition and envy. Verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Who is wise and understanding among you, let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil." For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Very encouraging passage if you read it the right way. Peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness what is constructive conflict would it be conflict that would be painless would it be conflict that would be planned would it be something that springs at you and you suddenly know how to do it what is it Well, one of the things about it, it seems to me, that makes it constructive is it's a self-conscious desire to put all your energy in seeing God glorified in your life and the life of others. And the standard, which I think you can use for this is that what you're aiming at in the glory of God is the difference between what you would naturally do and what you would do by grace. That difference is the glory of God. What you would naturally do would be have destructive conflicts. And what you do by grace, uh, that, that amazing difference is God's honor. Because it... Advertises what you couldn't do And what God did in you and through you And then it would be true of your Christian friend If this person that you're discipling Or someone who The person married to you Or a fellow single Anyone with whom you have a close relationship As you help them to enter into constructive conflicts The difference between what they do uh, By nature Or what they would do by nature And what they do by grace That's God's glory And we could apply that to non-Christians, too, that we see them now as they are, as we engage in conflict with them of one kind and another. Well, what what are we going to do? Well, we're going to glorify God when we see the before and the after. The glory of God will be in the change. And we want to be very careful to keep lifting that up before ourselves, because it's that that emphasizes to us and non-believers the glory of the gospel. See, that is specifically the glory of the message, because the message is God's weapon for affecting that through prayer. So, at the heart of it then, to state it just very positively, is especially to bring out the power of God's love. You see, that is what reveals the difference. We're naturally lovers of ourselves, we're not lovers of others. We're naturally self-centered and that's what makes us mean and cruel and whatever we may be at the given moment. And the breaking of that enables us then to live a life of love and then the heart of our conflict then is a love offensive in relationship to others. It's that that honors God. The thing that reaches the conscience in the other person is what reached my conscience. What reached my conscience hardened sinner that I am it was the discovery that God loves me well, that softened me that was both the hardest thing for me to believe and the most powerful and wonderful thing to believe that God could love me I often think of it like this when I decided Rosemary was the lady for me and I asked her to marry me To my surprise, she wasn't immediately enthusiastic about the whole idea. I don't know about you, but uh, she uh, said, well, she'd have to think about it. And uh, it didn't seem to me that required any thought. I'd thought about it. (laughs) So here I was, my merry self-centered little way. And uh, so I uh, took her flowers. I took her for walks. I quoted poetry to her. She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless uh, skies and so on. (laughs) And uh, anyway, I I, uh, was even out in front of her window early uh, in the morning to greet her before she went off to the university, etc. But finally, I looked her in the eye and I said, Rosemary, I love you. That did it. I think she was a little embarrassed. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, we are embarrassed, aren't we? When God looks us in the eye and says, I love you. But that's what melts us. And she said, Yes, I do. I will. And that's what moves other people. When we conduct a love offensive, that's the glory. Now, how would that work? Well, I'd like to give a example from that's told in the end of the book Come Back Barbara our daughter Barbara had tried my patience for eight years and often revealed how little of it I had and the grace of God was though that I learned a lot about myself in that conflict probably did more for me almost than anyone else But the question came, how do you mount a love offensive to bring this person into the kingdom? Relationship now was pretty open. We're good friends. God had worked many things. She just wasn't a Christian. And at this point, the elders in the church took up an offering for her and Angelo. They weren't even married. And they didn't have enough, she had this fellowship to go to Stanford, and she didn't, they didn't have enough money to go across the country. And the elders took up an offering to pay their expenses traveling across the country. Angelo was so touched that he got up out of the room when the money was given to them with a nice note and went outside. Now, Ann, Angelo is one pretty tough Italian macho guy. He uh, and I think his conscience was reached deeply by that love. He said he told me later he had to go outside in the porch because he didn't want everybody to see there were tears in his eyes. Well, that was encouraging. Lord, what do you want me to do next? That certainly glorified you because that's not naturally what. Elders and Presbyterians churches yeah. do. Take up <laughs> offerings for a couple living together without benefit of marriage. I, yeah, I was as amazed as he was, to tell you the truth. <laughs> so the, the glory of that was very evident to Angelo. He, he came back in and he said, I have never seen a church like this one. A couple days later, just before they got ready to leave I came into the living room and Barb was there and Karen was I don't know how old she was but she was lying on the couch and Rosemary was either standing or sitting there and I sort of prayed and gulped and pitched in and I said Barb you know we started talking about your trip and our trip to Uganda and all the rest and so I asked her I said, Barb, um, have you ever thought much about just eternity? And I said, when I go to heaven, I, I, really, I really want to take you along, not just as a beautiful memory, but I'd like to take you along. And when she heard that, she exploded. In our family, as she puts it, there are not many shouters. In fact, she's the only one who yells. And, uh, and she just yelled. I mean, she went right up to the ceiling and was, was hanging on the ceiling, <laughs> yelling at They had gradually came down. And I just sat there and didn't say anything in one of those rare golden moments in which I kept <laughs> my mouth shut. And so when this, this happened, when she hit the ground again, um, would you believe I repeated it? I said, Barbara, I don't know why you got so upset. All I said was, when I go to heaven, I didn't want to take you along only as a beautiful memory. And, of course, she goes up again, not quite so high, and then comes down. And uh, I wasn't trying to manipulate her. I was just telling her how I felt. And when she comes down to the ground... uh, She's really mad. She says, you've always been doing this with me. You've always been fighting with me ever since I was a small child. And I let her go on. And for a while, I says, no, Barbara, that's not true. You and I, I can only remember two or three fights we've had. It was not nearly enough. But we should have had many. And she looked at me. And suddenly, she ran across the room and fell up burst into tears fell at my feet put her head in my lap and after she was through sobbing she looked up with a grin and said dad we're going to have to do this more often (laughs) and I knew it was over how many more months even years but I knew it was over and I said Barbara is there there's one thing I'd like to ask you you know All of this proves I can't change you. And it proves that you can't change you. But Jesus can. Would you just pray that he would? She thought about it seriously. She said, yes, I will. Within six months, she was a Christian. And shortly thereafter, Angela was too. And at the beginning of those eight years of conflict... I couldn't have, no, I could no more have done that than I could have just started flying across this room. I mean, I don't think any one of you expects me to fly across this room. I mean, uh, the, it just isn't possible. Well, the same thing. And so, you see, the glory of God was this difference. And it came about through the Holy Spirit's just really changing my whole way of thinking about her. It wasn't just a, uh, Mental manipulation I was going through, but I had really experienced the glory of Christ. And I don't know whether that appeals to you or not. We all like success stories, and you read the rest of the book, you see how many success stories there weren't in the book. I mean, I lost all the battles, except at the end, the Lord won the war. And that's really what we want. Too often, we're interested in winning battles, and when the Lord is interested in winning wars, and that defines a love offensive, it's where you're much more interested in winning the person rather than necessarily winning the argument or establishing how right you are for the benefit of your own ego. So constructive criticism, uh, constructive conflict then is, is this. It's a love offensive in which you engage in spiritual warfare, and the measure of God's glory in the whole process is the difference He makes by grace. And I think it comes down to learning how to deal differently, how to deal with differences without judging attitudes. One of the things that happened to me, oh, 20 years ago, more, was as the New Life Church was getting founded. I tended to get intense about a particular person who was a leader in the church who really was not doing what he should. As he wasn't doing anything particular, that was my problem. I couldn't see what he was doing. And uh, so I had this little prayer meeting. It was just by myself. I didn't invite the Lord. (laughs) So I don't know whether you've ever had any of those or not, (laughs) I didn't need him. I was just there to tell him what I, what I, how I saw things. And uh, so I was telling him, Lord, this man is an arid, dry, cold-hearted intellectual. And I, I went on. It was a pretty full picture I drew of him. And, but then finally the Lord visited this prayer meeting where I was just talking to myself. And the more I talked to the Lord about this man and how arid and dry and intellectual and cold he was, Suddenly, I saw that I had drawn a self-portrait, and that I had been terribly judging him, and I was condemned. If you look at James 4:11 to 12, that's exactly what he's talking about. You say you're a doer of the law. Actually, you're a judge of the law, and you never were called to be that when you start launching forth as the judge and the accuser, the brother. So God really humbled me by that, and that man can be very thankful that the Lord came to that prayer meeting finally before I got to see him. Then the, the next thing is to try to deal with issues, not personalities. The natural way to try to solve a problem is to begin to fight with the person rather than saying, what is the issue here? What is, the, what is the difficulty? Or even if you want to change a strategy in the church of God, oftentimes we begin by kind of judging people and thinking ahead of time they'll be against something. Well, many times some people will be almost automatically. But I think that as you, as you look at it more closely, there are ways of doing things that are not so confrontational in a bad sense. For instance, when the church I had before New Life began to experience some measure of revival, the question was, how do you change the service to reflect it? And I knew, I had a friend out in California, he simply changed the name of the pastoral prayer. I think he changed it from pastoral prayer to congregational prayer. He had a fight on his hands. I mean, you have those hawks out there ready to descend. You know, Prometheus and the hawk chewing on his liver. You're Prometheus. And you have a lot of people willing to be, well, really, the eagle eating at your liver. So what are you going to do? So I decided that there is certain amount of wisdom in not changing anything in the surface because people might not be able to handle that right away. So... Uh, I talked with the elders and I said, uh, I would like to have testimonies upon occasion from new converts in the church service. They won't be long, but we will have testimonies if you're agreeable to that. Well, they couldn't argue with that, or they didn't. And so from time to time, we began to have these testimonies. And uh, I became better at spiritual inquiry And uh, some of the testimonies were really powerful. There was this woman in the church who had been... never was very... hadn't been really that good at spiritual inquiry. And uh, she had joined the church. I, I, I had sort of taught her for six months before I let her join the church because I didn't think she understood the gospel clearly. I just brainwashed her so she could repeat it. And... Finally, she, had, she became sick, and she had vertigo, and she couldn't even walk to the bathroom. It was so serious. Well, one day I used to visit her. I visit her once a week, and one day she said to me, Pastor, did you notice you come every week and pray for me, but I never get any better? I said, well, you know, Emma, that's true. So, and I admit, I just have a slight touch of cockiness now and then, no one else would notice it but I admit it's there so walking out the door I looked at her with a big laugh I said Emma you don't pray loud enough and went laughing out the door well I came back next week forgotten all about that kind of ridiculous comment and uh, she's full of praise when I come in the room so I said well what's going on here Emma she says well I'm I, I'm getting better I was able to walk to the bathroom. And I, I said, well, Emma, okay, that's great. I'm praising the Lord too, but okay, what's going on? And she says, well, I'm so glad that when I pray now, Jim and uh, my, my daughter are down at live down at the other end of the house, so they don't hear me pray. I said, oh, run that by me again. She said, well, last weekend you were here, you walked out that door with that, hearty laugh said I didn't pray loud enough I said I said he's right and I've been shouting <laughs> and every time I pray I get an answer <laughs> she was radiant to <laughs> keep her on that bed. and I suspect that she finally got converted with a good loud yell from the depths of her heart to the Lord Whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord will be saved because she just was a different person So I wanted her to come to church and give her testimony And since she was a young lady probably 75 and above uh, or above It uh, would be less threatening to older people in the church and uh, She stood up in her pew and began to talk about what Jesus had done for her and she was crying while she was doing it and smiling and laughing all at once and she said to people now don't feel sorry for me please i'm only crying because i'm so happy and i just want you to have the same kind of happiness what do you think about jesus and (laughs) me there's the glory isn't it so we just brought the glory into the service and that began to change the whole attitude of the congregation towards worship. It became much more they became much more aware of the deeds of God and the glory. And so what was happening then the whole worship was being shifted by hooking into what God was doing. The only other change I made was beginning to encourage the elders themselves to take part, at least briefly, in the pastoral prayer. So we would share it a bit. And then as more and more men began to respond to the gospel, I suppose we had a dozen men meeting with the elders before church to pray, and probably it was getting up to 18, 19, 20 eventually, uh, I began to encourage some of these men to join the elders in prayer. We had probably added only three or four minutes to the service. Maybe less than that. And so, these were the men who began to wake up the congregation. Everybody expected the elders to know how to pray. They expected me to know how to pray. We did know how to pray. And that reason, for that reason, paradoxically, we didn't know how to pray. We knew so much about it. These men, with great fear and trembling, some of them, they couldn't even pray out loud and when I first began to disciple them, just couldn't. And then they began to pray out loud with me. And then I brought them into this prayer meeting before the church service. And when they prayed in church, people were really aware that God was there. So that's all I did. I just kept the whole situation. We still had, um, you know, Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer. But people even began to wake up, you know, and they stopped reading their bulletins when... Things were going on, and, and, and the, the Holy Spirit was there. And the, that really is a love offensive where, where you try to get people to see what Christ is doing. And so you don't deal with personalities. If I had pressed at that point for a big change in the church service, we'd have a big fight, a personality clash, wouldn't we? Very likely. And uh, the other thing is that we should be asking questions rather than accusing. What is constructive conflict? In that same congregation, there had been a fight over the women's issue. I never did get fully clear in my mind what it was over. It had been so horrendous that a number of people had left the congregation. It was very small anyway, and they didn't need people leaving. But maybe that was God's grace anyway. But people had become very angry and they had shouted and screamed at each other over the women's issue. Well, after it had settled down, it had happened before I came. In fact, if I had known about it, I might not have come to that church. But I finally went to the women. And I said, Can you tell me what this conflict was over? They had been accused of, of uh, being divisive and all the rest. And, and uh, so I said, well, What was it over? And they said, It's over efficiency. I said efficiency yes she said the men in the church are inefficient I said how do you mean that well she said they will talk anything to death they, they just don't seem to know how to get started they don't know how to carry a job through either to the conclusion I said well I have a few problems along that line myself <laughs> so uh, I said to them well why don't you work for me said you don't have to be anything official in the church you said you've given up that idea why don't you just help me and their eyes just glowed (laughs) so they said well we've got some ideas right now (laughs) we have heard that you want to start evangelizing through the village Why why don't you let us save you a lot of time we will go through the village and we will interview everyone to find out if they would like a visit from you, and then when we have done that work, we'll show you which families want a call from you. They saved me a ton of time. They did a good job. and In a very short time, we had families coming to the church as a result of this work. It was amazing. Now, if I had gone to them and said, look, you ladies, I've heard that your reputation is a bit... uh." (laughs) But... As I listened to them, they had an excellent case. And in any church, the ministries you want to interfere with least are women's ministries because they're better run than ministries conducted by men. And uh, I I would say that may not be always the case. I've seen some of them that were badly run too. But nonetheless, uh, men often have fallen into sins of of just uh, incompetence sometimes. And these ladies were just very competent. And we do need the whole body. We don't need just the male part of it. And one of the ways that we show leadership is listening to others. So I asked them questions, and they were a tremendous help. And then they they got carried away with this. They thought, well, he'll listen to us on any topic. They started getting into my own ministry, asking questions about it. And uh, I think in some ways the fact that I eventually listened to them was led to a much deeper revival in the church, at least as it did in my life. One of the ladies was, was quite heavy, and she used to sit either in the first or second row in the prayer meeting. And afterwards, she'd always say, why can't we have more of a prayer meeting, less of a Bible study? I said, well, don't you like my Bible study? And she says, of course, I love your Bible study. Well, that made my little heart appreciative. And so uh, here I was uh, being loved a bit and encouraged. But they said, couldn't we have it on another night and really make this a prayer meeting? Well I thought, well, I don't know why they don't like my Bible study. I still felt a little bit of, don't they know I've gone to Westminster Seminary? and then the thought occurred to me well maybe they do know and that's why they're praying for me (laughs) and that's the other thing used to do I had been in churches and they almost never prayed that fervently for the pastor and his word and these ladies started praying fervently for me I began to wonder well don't they know I've had this Westminster training and uh, but obviously they did and that's why they prayed for me and uh, eventually I changed uh, a lot in my own life just through their influence But if you, so to say, get threatened and start accusing, just ask them why they think this way. And uh, out of that, God really blessed it. The other thing in constructive, uh, in in the matter of, of constructive conflict, there needs to be a rejection of gossip, but also the courage to go directly to people when you have something against them. Now that means we have to make ourselves approachable. If I hadn't at least in a little measure led these women to think they could talk to me, I don't think they would have approached me. And so we really want to work on approachability. And I haven't worked enough on that. My guess is that if you want to get in real good warfare, you have to be more approachable. I would say that for myself. Well, positively... If you reject that gossip, what are you going to do? Well, what you want to do is learn to communicate openly with other people. That's what sonship is all about. Daughtership that we're open. The whole idea is nothing veiled between God and us. We all with unveiled face. Behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. And we're being changed. That's what sanctification is. Looking in the gospel mirror and being changed into the image of Christ. We become those who more and more exchange our life because he exchanged his life for us well if that's true we see it that positively then it means we have to become serious about not repeating negative conversations we really do and just be more positive in our whole way of talking and I don't know about you after I've heard enough problems um, from other Christians I tend to get downcast does that ever get through to you? And so you just begin to major in problems. That's a tremendous struggle for me sometimes. I just, you know, sometimes see nothing but problems. And I get a sort of a sour mental state. And, and you, you just must see that's devilish. And the self-pity that goes with it, you can't go with it. And so be careful then not to run in your church a Christian soap opera. And what does a soap opera consist in? repeating conversations from other people. He said, I said, she said, you know, and uh, this is what's going on. You, You have to learn to fight against that. Well, then, what are the causes of destructive conflict? Well, we've talked already a lot about the tongue in this series. And the tongue, of course, is the cutting edge of destruction. Biting and devouring, Christian cannibalism, And what we need to ask ourselves, is there anything that goes deeper? And I think it's this, that when people get converted and they come together in fellowship, they have a new love for one another, there's a new joy, but there's also a new irritability. Did you ever notice that in the church, how or in yourself, or any team you work on, any small group you're in. that after a while, there develops a kind of an irritability. And, and a lot of what uh, Charlie and Ruth Jones have been celebrating to, with us is uh, Christian irritability. <laughs> Isn't that true? Sanctified, devoted Christian irritability. You know, the, the skit in which the little boy gets his hands glued together with super glue... And the father and the mother blame each other as they ride all the way to church. This is it. And whatever the Holy Spirit must do in ministry, he must visit us to overcome that. People are always talking about their baptisms of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, well, I think we could all use lots of baptisms of the Holy Spirit. And not just one, but we could use a baptism of clear seeing. So we no longer see people as our enemies, but we bless them. But we also need baptisms of joy and baptisms of love. And we ought to have them every morning and every noon every night. And that's why we pray. And so we must pray specifically against our irritability, which when we look at it, goes in the self-righteousness and the feeling that we are superior to others, now the difficulty of getting rid of that is summarized very well from uh, by a former missionary of world Harvest, a very gifted missionary, and he had this to say about be feeling superior to others he said it 's really hard not to feel superior to others when you are superior to others. Mm-hmm. And most of us have that feeling. Isn't that the heart of it? We may not be superior to anyone. We may be much their inferior. But you see that, and I think that's the root of the irritability. Jeff Salison, uh, at a conference, was summarizing what I teach, and he said you can summarize what Jack says in the three word letters P U S. Plus. He's talking about pus. I said, oh, Jeff, good night. That's, that's where, you know, I mean, I'm glad I'm from Oregon. We don't talk that way. <laughs> but I thought about it. He's right. Pus, pride, U, unbelief, S, self-righteousness. I would just add another L in it and, and put an L in it and make it a little more dignified. Pulse, and add the word lust. pride. Unbelief, lust, and self-righteousness. Well, those are behind the irritability. And uh, as we look at that tongue assignment, we ought to see the tongue as a revealer. It reveals what's going on inside. And of course, once we hit that... (laughs) How do you do that? Well, it's especially dangerous when there are times of testing and you didn't ask for wisdom. How should we explain that? Each of us has a point where things really matter to us. And perhaps they matter to God, too, at the point where they matter to us. But at this point where things really matter and where you're most likely to be right... Those are the dangerous points. I don't know whether you understand that or not. Do you understand that if you're caught in a sin, red-handed, you're more likely to repent immediately than if what you're doing, you're convinced, is one of your virtues. Beware of me when I'm right. Beware of you when you're right. And you see, when we talk about the law, as there's been a good deal of good conversation here about the law, we must be so careful when we're being right. Because sometimes we really are right, but even when we really are right, we can be very dangerous. Because Jesus said of the Pharisees, do what they, you know, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. Yeah. read Luke read Matthew 23 and Jesus you know this is the he looks over Jerusalem and says I would have gathered you your children under my wings as a mother hen would gather her chicks but you would not and he, it comes after all those woes in Jerusalem and they're basically woes about people who think they're keeping the law and are not so be careful about being right watch out Now, if you ask for wisdom in those times of testing when you're right, what might you discover? The point where I know that I am very vulnerable is in the area of my plans to do evangelism. This is very important to me, and if you pull the linchpin out of it, you might find yourself extremely unpopular with me for a while. And I probably wouldn't say anything angry to you. I might. I'd more likely freeze you out. Anybody like this? None of us. Nobody like that. Okay. Well, this one time, I was flying to California with my wife, Rosemary. And... um, Going to do some speaking there. There we're going to go to Mexico. Well, I was so depressed. I just kept getting more and more depressed. And when I got on the plane, I got on the, there was a fellow faculty member from Westminster on the plane of all things. And he was so filled with joy. It was disgusting. (laughs) Why do I have to put up with this? He's so joyous. He's all full of the Lord and all the rest. Oh, no. But as I saw his joy, the Lord convicted me of my deep sin that I had simply missed something valuable. What was it? That the joy of the Lord is tied in we're letting him be sovereign over your plans. A friend, a good friend, had taken out the key evangelist for a program I had. And when he took out that key evangelist program, fell apart. And I went to him and told him, I said, you, you promised that I could have that man and you took him. And he says, well, you're right, I did promise and I'm sorry but I've already committed him to someone else. And I went away, said, well, I forgive you. But I didn't really. And I just didn't have the wisdom to know myself. I didn't ask God for any wisdom. And it was in danger of destroying myself and what God did at that time, bring me to repentance. It was very, very, very powerful. By the time I got in California, I was filled with joy. Also, unexamined character flaws. In James, there's a lot said about selfish ambition and envy. If you look at the works of the flesh in Galatians 5.19 following, you'll be surprised how many of them are divisive works. Sort of a fighting spirit. Not taking the log out of your own eye before you take the log out of someone else's eye. And then, there's also... The deceptions of pride, unbelief, and self-righteousness. I've already talked about that, but I won't go into that again. But what I want to say is this. One way to discover whether you've got a lot of pride and self-righteousness is to look at your convictions. Now, having strong convictions is great. Isn't that true? Really, you've got to have strong convictions. But you also must accept a fact intertwined with those strong convictions are sinful attitudes. And just because you have strong convictions which in many ways are right doesn't mean that right in the center of those convictions may be envy, pride, unbelief. And that those convictions themselves may need a severe honesty in looking at them. Something I'm reluctant to do. And I have seen more people sin, I think, in fights over the law than almost any other thing. Well, they just broke the law, fighting over the law. And so we who are righteous must be so careful and when we go to win the unrighteous in one church I served an elder committed adultery with another elder's wife they ran off together we've been committing adultery for over a year and a half together and I think it could have destroyed the church not that the people would imitate what they did but everyone was so shocked immediately you get some people who want immediate judgment and others who are much more tolerant, probably too tolerant. But what you need to do is what God gave us grace to do as elders. It was to stand up in front of the people and first ask them for prayer the first week. We didn't even tell them who it was, I don't think. The second week we came and we announced that they they were under discipline we didn't excommunicate them what we did was simply say that first week that we come to repent of our own sins first and then we dealt with them I simply made it almost my full time job to deal with them until it was resolved. But God used it to bring great unity and blessing to the church. But it could have been very destructive. But we had to look at our own convictions and the feelings that we had because some people were instinctively wanting to just have severe judgment and others less so. And these people could start fighting with each other. So watch out when you have absolute convictions that you're right. Well, who is qualified to engage in, this, in constructive conflict? Basically, we're saying this has to be a wise person. And how do you get wisdom? Well, James 1 says there's only one way to get it. It's to what? Ask. But I guess maybe there's something even more basic. Why don't we ask more for wisdom? How much much time do you spend in praying for wisdom? I don't spend that much time. I usually get my back up against the wall and I say, Lord, give me some wisdom. Isn't that the way we we do it? So there's not a sort of a proactive uh, fighting here. There's rather a a sort of playing catch-up. And we should be at the beginning of every enterprise, every process we're going through, be constantly praying for wisdom from on high. And out of that would come the peaceful person described in in James here in, in this verse 18, the peacemakers. Peaceful, patient, and approachable person. Well, how do you engage in it? Well, one of the ways you engage in it is, what I've already said, by information, by repentance. But the other thing, often the people, uh, when there's bad conflicts in a church or in a marriage, usually people are ignorant of each other. So it's repentance bringing to the light. And oftentimes, we don't interpret ourselves enough to others. People are left mystified as to why we're doing what we're doing. And oftentimes, marriages only get resolved when finally husbands, uh, the husband sits down with the wife, the wife with the husband, and they simply say, one says, what would you like me to do, or to stop do, doing What would you want from me? And I've seen many marriages make great progress. Just like simple action. Some information. You know, in Oregon, we have a statement, never complain, never explain. (laughs) The state philosophy. I suppose this has been changed by all all the flower children that immigrated there. But uh, traditionally in Oregon, we never complain, we never explain. Heads bloody but unbound. We may not know where we're going, but we are going there. And so, that, uh, that's the way. Well, the final thing for an example. It seems to me that one of the best examples is just to be going back to Jesus and his way of engaging in conflict. You'll notice that sometimes Jesus seems to be going out of his way to get in conflicts. Did you ever notice how much Jesus seems to be the controversialist? Did you ever see that? It's almost as though, and if you read Ken Bailey on the parables, uh, you, you obviously come away with the conclusion that these parables are far more controversial than we would read them. There's a culture shock there that's often like an arrow going into people's hearts. And this brings us to the depth of Jesus' seriousness. We've already said so much for love. His love. But Jesus is also making that a holy love. And did you notice how much, as an example, he talks to people about hell? He talks about heaven, too. But as you look at Jesus engaged in conflict again and again, he brings the conflict around to eternity. The parables he tells, how many of those parables? Jesus is not encouraging lust. He's not encouraging lawlessness, greed. And I would say, applied to us as Christians today one of the primary laws that very few people speak to is love of money and, and, and material greed. I think the church needs to be in conflict in some of these areas of a healthy kind and just giving some of Jesus' teaching about what's going to happen to you if you go into eternity and your heart is set on material goods. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Yeah, that's, that's clear. And Jesus says, better to pluck the eye out of your head, cut off your arm, your hand, than to go into hell. And I think there has to be that divine seriousness in conflict. You See, back to Barbara. I think I really meant that when I said, Barbara, I don't want you to go to hell. I put it positively, but she got the other side of it. When I was on vacation, I was meditating on Matthew 23, 24, and 25, relating to hell and woes. And Sam, who is 18 months, walked on my Bible and just neatly ruined all those pages. I mean, you can look at it and you can hardly read them. But after some repair, I guess they're okay. But I was tempted to say, well, I don't need them in the Bible anyway. You know, I really know what's in them. And I can go over to Mark or Luke and get the same stuff, right? But you're not going to be able to follow Jesus if you don't get some of that power which comes from facing eternity yourself. and then bringing others to see this is a fight for life and death. And then you engage in spiritual inquiry both with the non-Christian, the lost, and with those who at least think they're saved. And my guess is there are a lot of people in the church who are convinced that they're going to heaven and they need somebody who loves them enough to get into conflict with them about it. Not to judge them, but to inquire. How is it with your soul? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, this has been a sacred hour. We have had some searching of Scripture and the Holy Spirit. And we come again once to you, once more And say, cleanse us by the blood of the Lamb And then set our hearts on pilgrimage Arm us, equip us, make us ready to fight Not to fight in an evil way But to fight with a holy love And the gospel and prayer And to take a firm stand for right and good And to hate evil (coughs) Oh God, we love you Thank you for being such a loving father to us. Glorify your name. Amen.